Welcome to Out of the Woods, the Threat Hunting Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Live Discord Interactive Podcast that aims to cover the burning topics relating to all the threat hunting and security stuff you want to know about. Just as a reminder, throughout the podcast, we'll be taking comments and questions from our Discord server. So if you want to participate, make sure to sign up and use the link in the welcome page. I'll do some brief introductions for the people that are here. So I'm Scott Poley. I'm a senior threat hunter at Cyborg Security. Um, I guess you guys take it in whatever order you want. We, Tom. <laughs> and Mike still here. Mike, take it. Uh, you know, focus engineering architecture and helping out with the sales side as well. I'm Lee, content developer, uh, threat hunter, as well as uh, customer success. So I help the, uh, teach the customer or our customers how to threat hunt better. And hopefully, I, I've been learning a lot from them as well. So it's, it's really nice. Yeah. Tom? Uh, Tom Costura. Um, got invited back as a guest panelist, uh, SOC manager. Uh, Long, long time spent. Uh, long time spent as an analyst and an engineer in the security side. Thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah. So for everyone that was not here last time, uh, we had our part one with Tom. We got uh, into so much stuff. We didn't finish all the things we wanted to talk about. So this is the second edition of that. So we make sure to cover down on everything we missed. Um, so it still should be a pretty good time. And for anyone that has never been in our live. Uh, podcast. We also do a future cocktail recipe that you know lets you kind of enjoy and drink what we're drinking at the time. And this time it's the firewall. You can check it out. Uh, someone will throw it up there in the chat. Um, and then at the end, let us know what you think if you are trying this drink because um, feedback's good. And so with that, we usually start this off by diving into four interesting artifacts that we kind of find out there on the internet. Um, kind of worth discussing or things we just want to bring to the table. So I think, Mike, you got the first one. Sweet. Um, so I chose an article from Bleeping Computer. It seems like we use that source quite a bit. Um, this is centered around the new um, domains or TLDs that Google went live with recently. <clears throat> so there's a lot of kind of debate around some of the TLDs that they just uh, opened up. One of them is .zip and the other is .mov or move. So both of those are extensions from real-world programs and applications that are used every day. Um, you know, .move, uh, it'd be MPEG-4 um, file types, right? So it, it's going to potentially cause some confusion and uh, new vectors of potential initial access for organizations, right? So um, in this article, I mean, they, they kind of go back and forth. They have people from Google talking. They have some security researchers talking. Google thinks that you know, it's not a big deal. Um, they pride themselves on security. They have short links. They have safe links. Um, they do a lot around phishing. And then the the security practitioners are saying, well, this is a really interesting way that we can now um, trick users into clicking links that they think are going to, let's say, one of the great examples here was GitHub. Um, so you're able to use uh, the symbol at the end of uh, URLs and URIs. And that will actually redirect you to a different site. So you might look at that URL and it might say github.com slash, um, you know, a bunch of other things after that. And then at some website.zip, 
right? And so that would redirect you. You might be thinking you're downloading a zip file from from GitHub, but it's going to redirect you to maybe a potential um, site. So really interesting, and I think we're going to see this play out in real time. Um, it's going to be really cool to watch the, the new you know methods of attack happen. Um, but I uh, just wanted to have this discussion with you know with y'all as you know, defenders of networks, right? What do you think about this new uh, move by Google? I'm, I guess I'm just surprised they didn't bring up the .exe URL, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, it's just a bad move. Like, starting to, like, we've worked so hard. Like, think about, like, the strides that needed to be taken just to get to the point where our cybersecurity awareness is mediocre at best um where you know for and i'm talking about for the general population right we tend to be more paranoid because we work in it and we see it so we're always super cautious like i don't care if it's something my dad sends me i'm dropping in virus total right but the fact that we're bringing in something that is close to file types that have been <laughs> leveraged maliciously already is just it's just going to confuse people. I think more people are going to click on things now that they say, hey, go to, you know, www.whatever.zip. And really, it's a zip file and it just drops whatever. I mean, I I mean, I could eat my words. We'll see what happens. But it just it seems like we've, we're taking like 10 steps back uh, for Social Security awareness. Uh, it is. Yeah, I was gonna say like the uh, the thing that surprised me is like I mean, what is the need? Like, are we running out of domain names? Like, you know, so like the move is kind of weird. Um, but I mean, from the look of it, it it sounds like you can kind of look for those common extensions and at symbols and URLs to be a kind of a form of detection or or way to kind of identify these things. So I mean, it's cool that it can kind of show up uniquely. Um. But yeah, you can't, there's a lot of people that they have learned how to identify where a domain exists in a long URL string. They're not going to know to look for the at. I mean, that's that you basically have to retrain some people for how they uh, interpret things. And a lot of them don't look at it as their job. So that, that's always been a barrier for kind of that awareness. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like this will make a certain group of people more successful or susceptible to this. Uh, so um, it's not the, I don't think it's the best move, but I don't know. I'm I'm just really kind of curious what their drivers would really be for this, right? It's kind of like that IPv4 moving out IPv6. We're running out of stuff, but started yeah. running years ago. We ran out forever ago, right? We don't need yeah. URL six. Yeah, we saw people seeing people implement it yet, right? Um, Sorry, I think like, cellular networks. Cellular networks. Like internationally, um, what about the technology that's been created to like antivirus? Uh, I you know I IPS is IDS is all those inspectors. You know now they now they gotta either send out a patch to say well we got treat dot zip differently now because it's not just a file. You know I, I, I haven't been around You're long. Clearly mad. Just kind of had flags all over. It. You triggered like please triggered. <laughs> I don't want to say the S word on this. But... Maybe I could try to bring bring a little little piece to Lee. Um, do it. Do it. 
I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I agree with you guys. I, I the, the big question is the why. And I, and I think like this kind of sparks to another thing of that kind of constant gap between developers and security professionals and like mm -hmm. that no cross collaboration and communication about this. But at the same time, new things are going to pop up. And this is kind of the part where like, we're always the, the, the blue team side, the security people always have their backs against the wall because they have to combat this. And by and large, the, the general populace that will be susceptible to this is just, they're not going to be aware of this for some time. So so that kind of speaks to a few initiatives, right? So you have to retrain your kind of security realm on how to deal with this, but there's an opportunity. So with these kind of just being launched and released, a uh, word of advice from me would be to, you know, places that are, are looking legitimately at this from a security perspective, buy up some domains and leverage them to emulate and test and look at behaviors and do different things to get an idea for how you can get your systems really ready to go to track that stuff. Um, you know, you guys are going to be out on the wire looking for new behavior type stuff to be able to launch out with Cyborg, right? Um, and then, you know, you know, past that, it's it's just a shift in, in, in that focus of we got to get better at tracking behaviors. So that's really what it's going to come down to. I mean, this is weird, but it's, it's annoying. I'm with you, Lee, but at the same time, it's kind of par for the course, right? Like if you really put it in perspective, it's par for the course. <laughs> Always happens. <laughs> you know, like, like the, the train of thought there, right? It's a little optimism in, in this, right? So, you know, right. we have an opportunity to be better security analysts. <laughs> it's that, that manager mentality where he's like, I got it. I got people going. How do I polish this turd? Yep, exactly. That's the job. <laughs> like, that's the job, you know, right? You bring you bring up a good point when it comes to what are the two ways these are probably going to be leveraged, right? Is initial access, which even though we do good things today, the the things that exist today already get past a lot of the phishing and things, right? Like that, right? So that's why that behavior is past that initial access is really important to focus on. And then two, it would be really odd if you didn't notice C two always going out to what looks like file grabs, right? It'd be like a lot of the same file grabs, or maybe they could be doing DGA off those domains, and then it would like a lot of ton of file grabs. I mean, even then, you you would think like, is there exfil going on? Like, like what is going on there, right? Um, so so I feel like from a being able to identify perspective, I think you know we're all all the security professionals are well trained. It's more the general populace that are gonna get hit with this and kind of like blindsided. Communicate, communicate, communicate. We're just gonna have to constantly talk to the to, to those that are uninitiated, right? Just there's. <laughs> It's a new wave of stuff. It's coming, and it's yeah. it's good that they're the, the article like this, Mike. Like I, I appreciate you sharing this from from this point of view. Is it uh it helps start that conversation? Like it's I good mean, to know that this is a thing before you get this widespread attack that now talks about this thing. You know, are you just gonna, so when you incorporate that into your sensory awareness training now, are you going to include deep fakes and chat GPD? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> would you rather say? <laughs> I'm also very optimistic about AI too, but I think we get that. Who's next, Scott? Yeah, so I um I got one up here, and it's uh more stat stuff driven. Um, so it's I don't even know how to say it. DB XUK. I'll just spell it out. But they do a lot of like uh, collection of different types of stats and put things together. And I really grabbed this because it just kind of makes me feel like it's like that fear mongering of stats in some uh, some elements. I mean, there's some interesting stats in here, but like when they say 85% of people posting puppy photos are trying to scam you, <laughs> like, like, it kind of bothers. 
right? Yeah, no, that's our first thing. It's, it's the most interesting stat, right? It's the first one. Um, like things What's like the that's data like poll. Yeah, but like how do you, when you say something like that? It's the first thing I ask. What What is the data they're polling for for these statistics? Right. It's it makes you think of like statistics and politics, right? Like you your your goal is to basically say there's a problem, which is okay. And there's some interesting stats in here that are you know their sourcing is probably well validated, but like you can't account for the population of puppy pictures. So <laughs> you're really you're really projecting what you think this means, right? Um, but they do kind of talk about the impact of COVID and what FBI reports as far as like the, the increase in cybercrime by three hundred percent, or you know, something like 75% of cyber attacks start with email. Like that's kind of a known, but I thought that number was kind of low personally, but you know, with all the latest vulnerabilities and the exploits going around, that might be more accurate. Um, and then, you know, talking about like the one I really liked was the number of files that are unprotected. And I didn't know how they classified as being protected or folders being protected as far as an environment goes. Cause I know data management is, is a tough problem for some organizations to solve, especially if they're already a big organization and they don't do it initially and they have to like figure out how to solve that problem um so i can see that being one of those problems um but i bring it up because i just want to like talk about that perspective of when you see data like you know 85 percent of puppy pictures can be scams when you're looking at data being thrown at you from a cybersecurity perspective um you know you still gotta kind of wear that hat where you're like okay what is it they're trying to communicate why are they communicating this and you know does it does it really hold true as far as the the purpose or does that meet their end goal right like um and sometimes you know the best way when you see something weird like that try to find some cor corroborating uh example of something similar somewhere else uh on that topic so you can pretty much take those topics and run with them um so i'm not going to go through all of them here but i i did share this just so that people can look at it um but uh oh tom are you sharing uh offensive puppy pictures this guy, uh, it looks sent <laughs> to me. So, so yeah, like, uh, yeah. What are you guys' thoughts when you guys see statistics, statistics like this, or data points when you when it just gets thrown at you? Like, how do you handle that? What do you do? So, it, again, I I kind of discounted some of this when you lead off with puppy picture stats, <laughs> right? Like. Okay, what are we what are we really talking about here? I mean, there are some. I just discount the. They're making good points. I just discount the percentage immediately, right? So this is really bad, but it's a bullet, right? There's no like description or talk. It's just boom, like. But they're not wrong that human error accounts for, I mean, data breaches, right? Um, they said ninety five percent of all data breaches, which that five percent seems tricky right um there's things like vulnerabilities and exploits and zero days and you know <laughs> not even like a high number right <laughs> exactly um but i mean they, they're talking about really good things like you know phishing is a prominent issue in today's space um you know uh, encryption on files um they talked about data breaches costing a certain amount of money um for recovery right so there's really good points in here if you take those points Again, Scott, to your point, kind of smush them together, and then you might have a kind of a valid point that you can then go action later. Um, and so if you're just throwing statistics out and you can't actually action those, you know, what are we really talking about, right? So, um, yeah, but that's kind of my, my two cents on that one. Um, uh, go ahead, Lee. I was just going to say, like... <laughs> 
I, I think I'm the same, bro. You, you question like, well, you know, once again, the source, where are you getting this from? Um, and yeah, you kind of walk away with the, or immediately hit by that puppy thing. You're like, is this, are we taking this seriously? Um, but then going back to the data, I see at the very bottom, it says the Netherlands has the lowest cyber crime rate while Russia has the highest. And I mean, yeah, I get it because Ukraine and, you know, what's going on over there and Russia in general. Um, I don't know. Uh, I wish they would cite their sources. I wish they would, like, provide the data that they got it from so we could, like... Well, I feel like you see similar statistics like this from threat reports that we do talk a lot on, right? Like, 90-page threat reports have pretty much the same bullets, but they have a bunch of context and support and the why and what they think this means and stuff like that. So the caveat... They did uh, post for at the bottom, um, but they don't talk about where they got those data points from each other. I'm going to go find the one that is talking about puppy pictures and dive in a little bit. I... And there's data from 2019. Right. I mean, what, what are the, what does data have to be to be like considered viable intel? Time when is, Highly accurate, relevant, and predictable. Well, predictable is the kind of the weird catch, but yeah. But yes, I don't know. It's funny stats. Stats forever are they're they're kind of like both helpful and manipulative, right? Like so, um, being in management, I understand like producing statistics to people. Um, people by and large want that easy to read, colorful pictures, base numbers, generalize it all in one thing, traffic light, right? Yes, exactly. Um, me, like, as I've gone through my career, like I've become numb to general statistics without being able to reference what the data points are, because like, without understanding them, those, those stats really don't help you. And then like, to your point, Scott, like the Intel reports, there's so many that just throw stats at you, throw stats at you. And a lot of them are, you know, really to sell the point or the general idea of the intelligence and that's good but if you don't provide the data points or if you can't like if or if you could go the extra mile to provide you know the actionable items that you might see out of it like the real the key points of the data points maybe not the whole thing but the key things that you could actually leverage the why. The you could yes the why um you know those are the parts like it and anyone that looks at stats i i encourage you to die for those like find the data points so you really understand what they're saying and don't just take it face value Cool. I don't want to be up random stats too much. So, uh, Tom, I think you're up next. Okay. Um, I had a, an article um, that I had found, and this, this kind of goes to that little touch on we had earlier with AI. Um, it's a focus point of my my kind of digging and research and learning. Um, running a SOC, it, I, I think it's important to get ahead of the game here. Um, it's a, an article by Security Roundtable. Um, it talks about will artificial intelligence replace your stock, um, and I and I think it kind of goes beyond that. But I, I think it's worth the the point of talking through how um, me personally, I'm very optimistic about AI. I think AI has incredible value. I think there's going to be a lot of incredible use. And what we're calling AI right now is not going to be what we call AI in two years. And the tooling and the things that are coming out as you kind of dive into the background of of the thing, I, I believe that they are going to be imperative to operationalize the SOC of the future. I don't think they're going to replace the SOC. You can't replace that human piece. 
But what they go about in this article is kind of really backing exactly what I'm saying in, in, in different examples um, where AI accidentally got it right and, and it was glorified, um, where, um, you, you know, the, the reliance on the people using the tools is what really comes down to. It's not a tool versus people. It's a combination of both. And uh, I, I guess I wanted to bring this to the table to, you know, to see what you guys think or anybody listening or, or joining in on the on the on the discord chat. Um, what are your thoughts about what AI means for us security professionals as we move forward, both from the threat side and the and the, the potential leveraging side for us to, to make better tools and to be more operational? Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked on AI quite a bit as far as, you know, I, I always like. When we talked about it before, it was like, what are the things to think about when you're uh, assessing an AI or machine learning type tool or solution? Um, and it was about like, you know, how, how do they manage it? How do they train it? You know, where do they get their data from? How do you val validate it kind of thing? But when you talk about like AI getting it right in a SOC and replacing certain things in a SOC, I feel like when you, when you talk AI, you really aren't talking about replacing people, right? Like if you look at the processes that, and Tom, we'll probably talk to some of this when, with your specific sock, but there are so many points in the process that people have to go through that a machine could very easily do, right? And and in, some people say mundane tasks, which is the obvious one, but that's where automation comes in, right? Mike, you you know about the automation piece. Uh, but, but but yeah, there there are other tasks that I wouldn't say are are more require a higher level of processing that I think AI can kind of solve as far as how do you stitch certain things together, where what things may stand out uniquely. And it's more like um, doing statistics on top of the automation that kind of achieve some of those things. Cause that's really what AI ML really is advanced statistics. And yeah, maybe like, I think the thing about people and AI is there's so much that goes on in our brain as far as how we compartmentalize different things and, and are able to turn and look at different things. Like you think about what it takes to learn when you, someone holds up a banana that your brain could say, that's a banana. Well, a machine that learns that needs like millions of pictures of a banana at different times of day with different lighting, with different angles. It takes that much, but we can learn that fairly quick. If you teach a kid what's a banana, it could be in seconds, right? So there's a lot going on that isn't accounted for in AI yet. And you can probably, we could probably get there, right? We're nowhere close, but you know, really, we really should be focusing on how can we leverage this effectively today instead of having the conversations about how do we replace people because now we're gonna just create this easy button. It's not an easy button. We're gonna make people better, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what it's really about. How do you make people better by using better tools? You know, like anyone ever tried to hammer something with a screwdriver? It's frustrating. And yet the problem is, is people just say, well, hammer harder or just give more people screwdrivers and more people. Right. And that's how we're going to solve the problem. And it's like, no, just find the right hammer and then make your people do three times the amount of work because it's easy now. Right. Like that's what we should be thinking. So I blame marketing and everybody that does marketing like has, has screwed up the conversation around AI and machine learning. So machine learning has been around for a very long time. And so when we talk about those higher level cognitive mm -hmm. things that machines do better, if we're talking about, you know, uh, looking at, uh, if you're, if you're ingesting a million logs a second, no human can go through those logs and look for analogies, right? So we build statistical analysis, 
machine learning models. That's what we've been using. Organizations have been using that for years and years, right? And then I think that got lumped into AI and there's not, there wasn't really a clear uh, differentiation between those two. Um, and then chat GPT comes out that kind of muddled the waters again. Right. And so you had a company back in the day, I mean, silence, they're no longer around, but a couple of black hats ago, they came out and said, we have machine learning AI models. We can catch a hundred percent of the things in the wild. And then they got absolutely destroyed by some researchers, um, that basically just broke the system. Right. And so. Even, even, you know, previous black hats, you have, Hey, we have AI machine learning models. We can catch hundred percent of the alerts, the tools, just doing everything for the analysts. And I think analysts are starting to get burnt out with that type of marketing and that type of talk, because that's when you start to hear, are you going to replace me? But Tom, to your point, Scott, to your point, these tools are amazing. If you can utilize them the right way. Uh, I know Lee, you built some anomaly, um, queries for different tools, right? And that. That does a really good job of gleaning the thing that you then need to care about, but it still takes a human to figure out logically that, okay, this might be bad or this is bad, right? Yeah, I think one of the things people forget is the math for AI and ML has been around for decades, like the 60s, right? Like people have and probably, and probably maybe in the 50s, like it's been around so long, we just haven't had the compute like we mm -hmm. do today to leverage it at scale to show the value we do today. So it's like, it's and the fact that people, like you said, marketing make it sound like this new thing that look what we have created. It's like, no, you've, you're using someone else's model that has existed because the theory is there and it's proven by math. And then you're able to tweak and do the, the data engineering part is really the, the, um, the creative part that that's the, that's the real science because people use the same models that have really mostly been created. It's how they engineer the data to put in those models that make those models really effective. And that's where you start seeing the nuances, right? right. But yeah. if we get in, we get into those discussions about ChatGPT, right? So we're seeing in the news now that it's going to replace, you know, employees that they're, you know, they're going to, they're firing people and implementing ChatGPT to take over those people's jobs. Those companies probably will not be around in the next couple of years because you're going to lose that, that tangible thing that holds those companies together. And I, I mean, I use ChatGPT. If I'm writing a piece of code and I need a quick function and I don't have to go look at documentation, sure, I'll let it spit it out. But I still have to understand the code to implement it, understand what it's doing. Um, it will get better over time. But if you're replacing people with that concept and construct, it's gonna you're gonna it's gonna bite you in the you know <laughs> later on. I don't want to get the explicit tag on our podcast. Yeah, it's out that ChatGPT is incredible at generating coded version-specific payloads for pen testing activities. Yes, creation workshop that's coming up. I can't remember how to use all the tools to exfil data. So guess where I got? Hey, show me how to use this. What are the parameters I need? What do I, you know, just to get like an idea because it's so much quicker than going to the documentation. It's not replacing me. Yeah. Um, but you know, like it helps out so much. Like instead of sitting there grinding away documentation, you fire it in there, you ask a question, it's good. What I like about machine learning and AI, it's great with large sets of data. It's great with that. Um, like Mike was talking about, I there are a couple of tools we use that have an anomaly detection transform command. You just throw that in there, you tell what fields you want to look at to determine if they're anomalous or not. And it 
provides you output, and it even has a field that entitles probable cause. So if it is malicious or if it is anomalous, it'll show up in that probable cause. Now, does that mean it's malicious? No. Just because that machine learning and that AI used all the math in the background and like Trump went through all that data and said, it's probably, I mean, it's in the field name, probable cause. It's not malicious. It's not anomaly. It's probable cause. Um, you still need that person to be able to go through and say, all right, well, let's hunt this down. Let's see what's going on. Let's see if it is actually malicious or not. And then, I mean, it's, it's kind of like Uber and Lyft, what they did to the taxi industry, right? We had, you know, taxis were driving and driving and driving. And all of a sudden they figured out a different way to do it. They're like, well, we don't need to be, you don't need to buy your own taxi. anymore. You don't need to do this. And a bunch of people adopted that. And the taxi industry took a huge hit because they're like, well, we're doing all these things. We have to have them registered. We have to have the upkeep. And Uber found a cheaper way to do it. It's not, it's the solving the same problem, just different, right? Um, I think that's what like chat GPT and this AI stuff is bringing uh, the same thing with uh, other tools that um, are implementing was a natural language processing where, you know, you say, can you show me some compromised machines in my environment? Okay. It, it could show you a bunch of machines. Um, why it's compromised. Do you know? Like, I don't know what it'll tell you. I don't know, you know, what output it will do, but what machines isn't it showing you? You know what I mean? And at the same time, you have to be smart enough to understand what you're asking uh, which is humans, you know, that's like our biggest struggle to say, you know, I want to sort the data like this. Like if you use any other Sims or EDRs and stuff, you probably learn the language. You probably know how to create a really pretty table, a really pretty graph. Um, while the natural processing will probably um, close the gap between juniors and mid-level analysts, it's not going to solve the problem of how did you know it was malicious? So I, I do have the catch-22 there. I think AI can solve uh, the role of a security an analyst if you try to hire somebody that has no security background. Right? Yeah. That's not realistic. <laughs> you know what I mean? So what's interesting, though, is, and again, this is going to sound really optimistic. I'm going to go way ahead of my optimism into another layer really quick. God, here we go. But think about... If you really look at the industry and you you see year and year after year after year after year that it's hard to fill those type of roles and you have a level of tooling that could help people with less experience be productive to do the thing you're trying to All do, right. that opens up a lot of opportunities. And I'm not saying that it, it like you can't like people with, with security experience versus none, th there really is no way to, to kind of match up those swords, right? But the thing you can match up is people are always going to be people and the creativity and the background and the, and the diverse thinking and the way that in the way that they process problems. If you put a tool in their hand that makes them more capable, the, the things that you could potentially come out of that with, I think, are exponential. And that's that's where my where my optimism really kind of tends to stick is AI is going to allow like something like chat, B, chat GPT. I'm not afraid of it. Like a lot of people that I, I talk to in, 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 in different companies that are relative peers or, or other, other layers of company, um, we should embrace it as a tool that will allow our people to be faster, 
operationalize faster, but be more creative at solving the problems. And, and like, this is the one thing that I keep sticking with is make no mistake about it. The bad guys are going to use these tools. Oh, yeah, so that's true. The good guys sit back and decide we're just going to not and we're going to we're, we're going to they're going to go make rifles and we're going to throw rocks at them. We're going to lose that war, you know, and it's really that simple. But it, 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 there's a lot of layers and this thing's going to play out. But AI as it exists today, it's not AGI. It's not general intelligence. It's it's all machine like advanced machine learning stuff, really good computing against data sets, you know, and, and the danger does come down to the data you feed it, like you said, Scott. But by and large, the chat like tools that exist right now, like chat GPT, they should be embraced as a tool that we should leverage to use to improve our capabilities and allow our creativity to finally come out of our heads instead of beating our head against the wall about an idea we had about code, but I don't necessarily know how to code all that well. So now I either got to go hire somebody else or I got to sit there for months at a time to learn how to get to where I wanted to get. And by, by that time, that creative idea may be, you know, it may have dissipated. It may be long gone or maybe not matter anymore, you know? Right. Yeah, I think that first part of your, your talk track was like our mission statement. Give people the tools to make themselves better, right? Yeah. Uh, my frustration with it, and Scott, you made a point, and I think Lee, you were talking about it. If you ask it a question and it returns some data, and I've used this in ChatGPT and Bard, Google Bard. Like, where'd you get the data from? But if you ask it, how did you come to that conclusion? It's all black box, right? They can't work back through the decision tree to figure out why it got to that decision. And that's what's scary. So if you're using this for anomaly detection, uh, network traffic analysis, and it pops something, you're not really getting context around why it thinks that thing is bad, yet it might get to that place. But you now have to have a human involved to go track that down, right? So what you get in there. Yeah, that's the Good. point. Checks and balances. Yeah, because you know, like you think about, like we've talked yeah. about it before, like if you get that one alert that means something, your whole, like usually it doesn't matter how mature a security group is, they're pretty good about investigating things they know. It's investigating things they don't know. So there's that one like, hey, here's some things to look at. That I think helps, right? I would love if we can throw a poll up, it would be really cool to see how many people in their jobs today, their management has talked about machine learning, AI, chat GPT, and try to bring it in house. Cause the thing that was really interesting, um, and that frustrated me was the immediate adoption, Microsoft coming out with copilot, uh, GitHub copilot. Um, I started to see prompts in SAS products that we pay a lot of money for saying, hey, here's ChatGPT, use this for blah, 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 blah. And it's so frustrating to see that knee-jerk reaction that everybody needs to implement it because we have to have it because everybody's talking about ChatGPT. So, I'm going to go on a small tangent, but the one thing I loved being implemented was for Gmail, for it to auto-write your emails to respond to people. Oh, my God. I was like, how much time would that save, Tom? Your management... How many emails do you have to write a day or respond to? If it can look at the history and it knows what you want to say and it can just say, hey, here's a here's a good response to this based on what I know. Wouldn't that save you so much time? Oh, yeah, for sure. But you're reviewing the spitting out, right? Yeah, no, you can see it and then you can edit, choose, and then you can have regenerate. But I was just like, oh, man, like, I was just thinking like, man, how many relatives that email me because they don't you know, like to call me? I can just like easily like, all right, yeah, I got it. Whew, there you go. Like, you know, I, I can still put my voice in there, but I don't have to spend all the time right. constructing everything. And it doesn't look like I'm being rude if I'm just being quick, you know? Yeah. 
you know, and, and tech support for family members, right? Just, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but I, Mike, if I had a dollar, I'm sorry, go ahead, Lee. I was going to say, Dorkman said, point out that GPT has been helpful with breaking down complex code quickly, speeding up summarizations, which is great because I, I've never had to code anything except here. I mean, and those are basic scripts and whatever, um, you know, batch files, PS1 scripts, something very simple. But Dorkman, great example. I had a piece of code I wrote last year, I think. It was a function. I couldn't remember what I was actually trying to do. Dropped it in and it broke it down for me. So I was like, ah, oh, that's that's helpful, right? And ask it like, well, what is that? And then it, you know, like the little bits. Once again, go, Satan, like, if anything, if Chat GPT does anything, I wanted to replace all the man pages in Linux. Um, <laughs> You're right. Like that's that would be. Um, I mean, I actually have to optimize my code sometimes. I'll have like where I'll get something to work, but I'm just throwing code at it piece by piece to get it there. Then I'm like, so well, this looks good. ugly. Uh, is, I've seen it do okay with PineScript, but tried to do the same thing in C Sharp, um, and it's very incomplete. I'm curious to see some examples of that. I know I've uh, I know someone else said, oh yeah, just rely. I said would it be true if AI AI is inherently right. There are times where it provides answers which aren't exactly correct. For instance, in code implementation, uh, I've run across that as well, where uh, it said like I could use the wildcard. Uh, to like change your files and stuff. Um, and sorry if those are all my examples. Those are at the top of my head because I've been working for the workshop recently. Because um, that's all I've been thinking about is exfiltration. Um, where it says, hey, you can use it. And it doesn't work, right? Um, which I get is the problem with a large group of data. That if it's looking for, or if it has all this data, um, you know, maybe it's pulling from the wrong bucket or the wrong source. Um, that <laughs> block that worked for direct access. <laughs> yeah, we see a lot of that. Yeah. And, Just uh, interesting. That's interesting to me. I don't understand that thinking, and I generally have challenged it in conversations, like the whole block it at work. I'm like, okay, well, one, if people are smart enough to go to use the tool, they're going to use it on their own devices. Um, you're not really stopping anything, and uh, and two, kind of your company's capability yeah. developing sorry Mike. no yeah sorry i missed your second point you said it's the company's ability to develop against that tool set well with it or or alongside of it like you're you're kind of like stunting potential development by letting them use the tool and, and i understand where companies are generally afraid of like ip getting out and, and there's 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 a lot of you know kind of accountability and like legal stuff that goes into like if i put code in this how can it use it if i develop something i sell can they then charge me or come to me and say hey we wow. helped you create a tool blah 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 how does how does a company then protect against people going to um all those coding sites and someone's trying to develop something and putting in the code there right like exactly it's exactly because it's on the radar and it's public but there's so many forums that people try to get advice for before chat gpt that weren't regulated the same way and yeah like that there's no great way of doing that and you can't block the internet so yeah it's i'm with you on that interesting approach because it doesn't actually solve anything yeah but um i don't know if we want to jump to the next topics i don't want to not get to our topics at the end so i think we'll uh table if we have anything more to say we'll table it for another time and we'll jump to lee's stuff how about that no, we'll make this real quick. It's really not just an article. It's like ransomware. I know nor like normally 
I'm the one that like scoffs at it. It's like, oh, ransomware's on the news again, blah, blah, blah. It has been like just a show recently. Like um, in the past month, just reading articles like the Sentinel Labs, uh, the title was just Hypervisor Ransomware. Multiple threat actor groups hop on leak to, uh, I think it's Babook, code to build ESXi lockers. So they found 10 different ransomware fi families that have evolved from that uh, 2021 uh, source code leak, right? So that's just like, it, it just blows my mind that you have one thing like that happen and it just evolves in the wild and like just naturally like all these different groups are picking pieces of it. Um, and then uh, it's it's funny. So first of all, I, lo I love these reports because when it comes to ransomware, it's all like about speed. It's all about effectiveness. And I think that, you know, if you're looking for um, really like living up the land binaries and nothing like new introduced into the environment, this is where you're going to find it. Like if you look at the DFER reports, you'll see a lot of, um, I'm going to say uh, command prompt, you're going to see PowerShell, you're going to see PowerShell commandlets. So like it really, sh like if you want to set, or if you want to talk about coverage and visibility, you want to look at these reports because these are the quick, you know, dirties. Like if you're not collecting these logs, you're you're not going to find the quick attacks, and you probably won't find the long attacks where they just sit and watch, right? Because they're going to use the same thing over and over. They're going to discover your network. They're going to use those tech techniques or tactics, techniques, and procedures. Um, and if you don't have the basic logs to capture that. Not only are you not going to capture ransomware, but you're not going to capture the other attacks. There's also and the the spectrum that these organizations and groups work at is completely wild. Um, I know the, our content development team did a lot of work recently. Um, they did a whole package or a collection on the Rapture ransomware family, which I find interesting because it was this or Trend Micro, Micro took a report and they said it's just straight the minimalist approach. Like they did the least that they had to do in there and they got it done. Then you have the Cactus Ransomware, which is another uh, collection that was created by our great content development team where it kind of, it's not as fast, but it still shows the same TTPs. You know, it, it works through installing, you know, getting persistence, grabbing credentials, you know, Cobalt Strike is always involved. Um, but then, you know, it's just a different approach. But it's the same thing because it's at the end of the same goal. But you can see all these different techniques. And if you take all these reports and mash them together, I think you would find that you would start really, you'd be able to start hitting all the main points, right? Talk about creating accounts. Are threat actors doing that? Are threat actors, you know, of course, getting rid of your shadow copies? Do you have logs to capture that? Do you have logs that are, um, you know, finding the basic stuff? You know, not just your, you know, 4688s or your process creates, but do you have the command line auditing? Do you have files being created? Do you have registry key modifications? Whatever the case may be, um, these ransomware are really good. These reports are really good places to start. And if you ever, like, I'm not telling you to prioritize over, ransomware over ever anything else i would just say if if your goal is or if it's your job to look at visibility and coverage start looking at these reports because they're not gonna they're not gonna give you the super unique zero days that were used it's gonna be something that is just constantly abused over and over again because it's it works 
ransomware is quick and they use the tactics that works. So to, to, to kind of jump off what you're saying there, and I'm trying to remember, this was a while I made, it's closer to 2015, maybe 2016, so a little while ago. And I was talking with a really good analyst about like how the advanced adversaries work. And he was like, I mean, let's think about it. They're still using techniques from 1997 because they work, right? And that was back then when we we're on the older OS and things like that. So obviously they definitely still did work then. And same thing with the ransomware. Like they, it, they're a prime example of just doing like what you said works. Um, so I, won't, I don't want to call it lowbrow, but it's just consistent. And then the other thing I wanted to call out too, um, so in one of the reports, so I was developing some of the stuff for the Rapture stuff. And one of the things I think people really need to pay attention to in reports is screenshots. Because I'll tell you this, there's a lot of things that were called out in that report, but there were some things in the screenshots that were not. And when I was pulling the screenshots out, and then what's great about having a Mac is you can then easily highlight text in the screenshots. And then having ChatGPT, I can say, well, what is this doing? And one of the behaviors that was really cool was to say, I took one of the screenshots and I was like, okay, look, there's a bunch of obfuscated PowerShell here. I just want to understand what, it, what I think it's doing. It took me three seconds to do a screenshot, pull the text out, put it in ChatGPT, and it basically showed me that they were actually doing log4j enumeration on hosts to try to figure out there's a vulnerability there, vulnerability there to you know execute things or elevate themselves. And then I can sit there and understand what it's doing to build content off of that type of behavior. But, I mean, that's really powerful um, use of using like the AI-based stuff, also understanding a really good behavior. And just seeing how they're not trying to do anything fancy. I mean, Log4j has been out for how long? And I'm pretty sure when I was actually researching the script, was they kind of stole it from the standard script that was shared for security people to find that vulnerability themselves. They just put some obfuscation in there to try to help make it, you know, not as detectable. Um, so it's also interesting when you talk about, like, people using what's already out there, especially with the Babook stuff. Um, yeah, if we don't use it to learn, attackers are always going to learn things out there. So... I just kind of threw a bunch of random things, hope some of that stuff stuck and made sense. But uh, that's kind of my, my two cents on those. Bob, you got anything? Yeah, I, I, well, I'll, I'll try to streamline it. Um, what's interesting about this is you guys both kind of hit it on the head. Lee, you, you started with the, the whole idea of like, you know, ransomware is interesting to me because the behaviors are relatively in the same puddle still. And... Yeah. You know, you see articles like this, which I think the, 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 you know, both points are amazing. Like the articles break down a little bit. The screenshot thing is so important. Anytime you read any threat report, report that has screenshots, pay attention to the screenshots. Yes. Um, but the, uh, it, it spawned like a bit of a thought. So the behaviors are the important piece, right? And that's where we like really have to shift to that. And, and people still tend to kind of strip those because I've seen in a couple of the reports they had like the, they had the, they had, they had more of the atomic IOCs, right? And a lot of places still use those. So, you know, just tiny, tiny idea. Don't move past that, leverage them, but move past that to the behavior piece because like we're saying, it, it sticks. But that had me thinking, like there was a point in time where atomic IOCs were the only thing. And, you know, socks or, or security professionals would, you know, they would leverage IOCs and they'd match against them against data, and they'd say, oh, something to investigate, oh, oh, IOC, IOC. And we've shifted to that thought to the behavior, and I'm, I'm just, my, my content development brain is spinning to wonder if maybe it's AI, maybe AI helps us get there, um, that we could have behavioral detections that now take in those variants as sub-IOCs that can 
automatically shift the content to the new. I call them artifacts. Artifacts. I'm sorry. Um, if the if you could have if you could have your general behavioral detections, especially if you have them so mature down to a fact where you're looking at specific families, right? Like if you're looking at something like a rapture, or like cactus, and then you could you could have these intel reports feed those as IOCs to your content and not to your detection. To allow it to adjust some way to track the new ways that they're doing things or add, you know, variant detections. I don't know. My mind's spinning on that. I, I, I wanted to spit that loose idea out to you three. Well, we if, we if build it. content based on that idea without AI, right? Other than like using AI as a tool, right? Like we we look at these families and these behaviors, and we try to like we call them collections, but it's around the same scope as like, hey. And what's really cool, I don't know, Tom. We we've talked about this some, but. When we see new reports or new activity that's emerging, we look at behaviors we've already developed for, and commonly we have most of those behaviors now because we've been developing for so long. And that's the beauty of developing content on behaviors and IOCs because it's reproducible and reusable. Um, and then what's really cool is that when you have that collection, now you have like, you know, when you look at actor names, they're not really the group of individuals because we know those individuals can get hired, fired, replaced, moved or whatever in any kind of nation state operation. It's just a job. Someone holds that seat. So that means it really is their activity profile that's being named. When you say APT one, two, three, whatever, it's really their activity that is being named that because they can mature, learn new skills, change, do whatever. And now it usually gets called something else because it's not identifiable with that same fingerprint. Well, with yep. the collection of behaviors, that fingerprint sticks a lot longer, right? And it has that much more potency as far as, okay, so if these people do change, move, or whatever, or their SOPs don't change, a lot of times you still find the same behaviors for an extended period of time. Yeah, and, and to your point, Tom and Scott, I think the power of what we, how we think about threat hunting and the content that we produce and just our methodologies, it's really kind of a, we're starting to see it's a one to many. So you're going to have one hunt that is tied to many uh, actors or threats where you couldn't have that from an IOC. There's not a single IP address that multiple actors or malware is using. That's never the case, right? So for us to be able to have, uh, you know, the amount of content that we have that covers down on many actors and techniques and kind of, you know, uh, spreads it out against all of those, like, I believe it was cactus came out and I know Scott, you identified like, Oh, we already have these behaviors, like multiple behaviors covered off of this because we've already written to those in the past and you can just apply those because they're reusing that skill craft. Right. So a good third party Testament. I mean, if you look at miter and look at the techniques, they map all of the adversaries that have used that technique. There's a lot of adversaries on a lot of those techniques that are not mapped. Right. It just shows like, Hey, if this is a technique I can build something for, or I understand how it works, then theoretically, like I'm covering across a lot of tradecraft. The only problem there is some things might be dated, right? So you don't know if it's the full list, but it just kind of shows you the effectiveness versus you pull an IOC out and say, how many actors, adversaries is this map to? You might get two, you know, like you're lucky if you get two because IOCs are so broad, you know, that kind of thing. You can't necessarily fully block those behaviors and environments or organizations and infrastructures. Yeah. That's why they're still there, right? right. Or else they would be decayed out. So that's the importance of funding for those behaviors because it's not something you can just turn off necessarily. Mm -hmm. Like you can block it or repeat in the domain or, you know, some of those ephemeral type of uh, indicators. But I'd say let's shift over to 
Tom's talking. We got you know forty minutes left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pull it down. So, so Tom, I'll kind of introduce the topic. We've talked about this before, um, and it really comes down to how your security operation and what you do at First Energy, um, as far as the structure, right? Like, I was there with you side by side as analysts growing up trying to build the sock out and then we both have changed roles and led the, the same team in different ways um but like the tiered versus tierless right can can you speak to what tierless and tiered means to you and kind of what you've seen as far as what you've been able to do and and kind of walk through some of that maybe we'll have some questions and comments ourselves but uh, i just really want you to kind of dive into some of that because i think it's really really cool and I've, I've seen personally where it's been effective and i know you still had success yeah um so, you know, starting at the top, tiered versus tierless SOC, um, or you really have this kind of layers to where you have people in certain roles that can only and only are allowed to do certain things, right? So you bring in people that might not have that much of a skill set and you only allow them to do X. So the idea is they have to go up to the next person that's at the next tier to do Y, next person in the next tier to do Z. And you have this kind of chain of command um, that, that, that is in place or was in place for various reasons. Um, I think there are places that a tiered approach works. I think in socks, by and large, they don't. That's my opinion, and I've kind of religiously stood by this from day one. Um, when I started as a security analyst, um, our SOC was just being stood up, and there were consultants in there from, from major consultant companies that were trying to help the company stand up the framework of what the SOC was. And we cross bridges with a lot of things to where you know, you kind of get into this place where they treat you in a tiered way where it's like you aren't skilled enough or you haven't been here long enough or you don't know what you're talking about. Go sit down and shut up, follow this procedure. We found really quickly that that actually is very destructive, especially to people who are passionate and excited about what they're doing and they're digging in and they're grinding and they're going after it. You're limiting what your capability is in a socket, in my opinion. It's my opinion, my experience. Um, I believed wholeheartedly against the tierless idea, which removes that kind of structure and creates more of a flat operating place where all of your analysts are able to dive into any degree to any level. Um, how we how, how we have built that is we built a team structure that supports that idea across the ecosystem and across the personnel. So it's not something that we're, you know, the, people generally get afraid of tierless. They're like, oh, you're going to have a young analyst break something or you're going to have, Somebody make a decision that's going to block something that's going to cause business failure, or they're going to miss something because you're entrusting them to do everything all by themselves. Like, no, it's not that way. It doesn't need to be that way, and you should never actually have it that way. Um, checks and balances. You have a you have a structure that's tearless. You you know you train your people so many inches deep across whatever your ecosystem is to make sure that they're capable of using the tools. Right. You don't you don't like bring them in and just hand them a flamethrower if they don't know how to use a flamethrower. Train them. But then from there, you have a team structure that has checks and balances in place, peer reviews, things like that. You have an open structure that everybody's allowed to work together to solve problems. And man, the problems that we've solved and the innovation that we've seen and the ways that we're able to find advancements to get ahead of the game and come up with these like really cool ideas because you have a structure that allows it. It doesn't have a lot of barriers to go through a tiered structure to where you as a level one analyst might have this fantastic idea that could dramatically help a problem that your sock's dealing with, whether it's a new detection or whether it's tuning something you have that's causing a lot of burnout and headache. And you don't have to wait to go through these barriers to try to solve that problem. Um, 
and man, I, I, I can go on and on and on about how I, I believe a tiered versus tierless, how tierless versus tiered is a problem and how I believe that a tierless approach or closer to a tierless approach should be handled. Um, so the bottom line comes in is like the innovation piece is where I stand, where I put my foot in the ground, where I really cement it. And the, the ability to allow people to be powerful in their thought and allow them to have creativity and look at solving problems. And then the collaboration you get when you don't set barriers between people, it's exponential. And all we've ever had is exponential improvement going through that chain. And I'm not going to preach on it like it doesn't have its doesn't have its hurdles. It does. It has some hurdles. You do run into some mistakes where where you have people that may think something something and make a decision. But that's where the checks and balances come into play. That's where you rely on your team and your structure to work together to make sure that you're doing the right things. And I believe wholeheartedly by it. Okay, I'll take a breath. Sorry. So, I think you, the the main the only word that came to my mind when you were talking about this was creativity, and you nailed it. If you put someone in a box and you say you have to do A, B, C, and D, after you do that. It's out of your scope. You're going to have people just sit there and just drone and say, all right, I did all those things. Now it's off to the next thing. You know, all right, I'm going to do the same thing. You're not only limiting them, but you're creating bad habits of them not being, by saying don't reach out of the box, they're automatically cut that off. They're like, I'm just never going to, I'm never going to think about this now. Now you have drones, now you have burnout. And Mm -hmm. then they get promoted after they've been there forever because they're like, Oh yeah, you're, you're now the next tier up. And they're like, Oh, well, what do I do here? I don't know what my responsibilities are. And then they get there and the other analysts, Oh yeah, this is what you got to do. And I go, okay. And then they do the same thing. You have just all these boxes of people not being creative of following procedures to a T by checking the boxes, but that's it. No, but I'm, I'm done. But I just do want to say is, um, so far, we have five people saying that we that they work in a tierless environment. Um, tier versus, I'm going to say where we are, it's definitely tierless. Um, Mike's our VP of uh, operations. No, engineering, right? No, automation. You know what I do? No. <laughs> we anyway. just call him Mike. It's just Mike. Yeah. But we work side by side a lot when we're talking to customers we're on the same calls where he's like, Hey, what do you need? You know, it's constantly the same thing. Um, you know, it's not like, Oh, I need to talk to a supervisor that needs to talk to a manager that needs to talk to a director. You know, right. it's just like, what are your ideas? Bring them to the table. Um, we'll see if they're valuable and then, you know, we'll move on. But the, um, yeah, the, I've only ever worked in, we, we used to call them flat orgs, right? So it's, it's, there's not managers of managers. Typically you have that ability to do that if you're working in a startup environment. So I, I mean, I've, I've spent a small time in a major defense contractor and things got very slow and very segmented and very tiered very quickly, right? So some of the old antiquated thinking of you have a manager, you don't talk to the manager above that manager because you're going above that person's head things just slow down tremendously, right? Uh, but there is there is value into having everybody sitting in a room together and learn from everybody, um, be able to have conversations with somebody who is maybe that tier four analyst and you're learning as a tier one that you can have these conversations, watch what that person's doing and learn from that person's, um, you know, 
actual response to things. But I do want to ask you a question, Tom. So when it's game time, and I'll use a sports metaphor, right? We can practice all day long, um, and we'll call practice a tier, tierless kind of environment where everybody's working together. But let's say it's game time. Let's say there's a fire. Something breaks out. Typically, you got to pick your guys who you know can do that work and put them on it because there is a time sensitivity to those type of events where you can't spend the time for somebody to learn in the heat of the battle where they might be able to see what's going on. You're not going to segment them off, but you still need to run with your your game day players, right? So in your experience from materialists, like is that a small caveat into kind of the operational side of it? So that has been, you know, what's funny is that is... um it's seamless because the way people develop and, and, and this, here's the other part. When you're sitting in, in a sock, you're going to be dealing with different types of incidents, different types of, of response things. And, and in a tierless structure, you're going to have people that actually develop different types of professional capabilities and different types of skill sets. So it actually opens up the table to have more people solving the big fires than right. a few. But at the end of the day, in a critical situation, it doesn't matter what system you're in. You're going to have folks that you're going to go to that are your top dogs. That's that's the nature of the game. So there right. will be top dogs that come in. But when they operate, those top dogs operate in a tierless system. They're not stripping these folks from learning. They're not stripping it away from these folks. Sure. They're sure. they're helping them solve the problem while they learn and they develop. But they take the lead when they need to. They they roll their sleeves up and have, have that person that, that might have hit their, hit their stop point sit here. But don't leave. Don't get shut out. Learn sure. what I'm doing. Pay attention. So yeah, the big dogs get called in anytime they need it, but I'm, I really firmly believe that the um the opportunity to have more of those big dogs and it, it happens in a tierless system. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It, I think having the architecture and infrastructure to share the the access to whatever you're doing from an operational perspective, if it's access to the tools, the notes, the you know whatever you're doing in the IR process to have that visibility, I think it's huge. And so. It probably, you know, you could come in as a manager and say, I want this to be tierless, but I'm sure there's some things that are, you have to put in place in order for that to be effective or else you get in kind of a, a wild, wild west type of situation, great situation. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. There's still management, right? You're not just dropping people in the room and walking away and saying, all right, well, fend for you. It's not the Hunger Games, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, you know, you, there's still really, framework. There might be a really yeah. cool, like, uh, piece of collateral or something that you can, build out is how to run a tierless sock, right? Um, I so much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so much. I love talking about this piece, man. The tierless Awesome. I've got a few few uh, bombs to drop on this. So I do feel like tiered is very uh, antiquated, and only because I feel like the tiered approach comes from our, like, big orgs, and, and a lot of people desire to have, like, a strong process. Right, where you want you want to understand how things go from point A to point B to point C, and it all makes sense, and you know at the end of the tunnel you have a good solution. But that's when you understand the problem, right? Can you build good process? But when security, there's so many different ways that you have to solve the problem. That yeah, you'll solve the majority of the known problems very well, but it's those other things that kind of get around that process that where it starts to break down in some some aspects. And two, I really feel like the tiered approach, it dates back to when we relied on like antivirus alerts for alerts for response, right? 
And we know today, if we were to just sit there and say we built our sock around an AV agent that told us when to investigate things, we would fail. Um, and so, and what I'm really, really saying there is it's more like a, how well do you develop alerts to feed the process of a tiered approach, but a tier list really enables your people to utilize their skills in different ways to maybe threat hunt, to look at, uh, events in different ways to possibly, um, come up ways for improving the types of alerts they're looking at. Like they're part of the process for making security better, not just a plug and play element to help make work move along like, you know, the pipeline and like a almost manufacturing type process, right? Where it's like, oh, my job is to do X. Well, now you can change how your job works in a tearless approach. And, you know, this also comes to light when you talk to people about the different elements in security. And Tom, I'm going to throw something your way, so just get ready for it. Um, you know, you have... You you talk about um, groups and their threat intel, their threat hunting, their SOC, their SOC engineering, and 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 maybe um, compliance and instant response. And they talk about it being very siloed. Like you you know you'll talk to customers, you talk to people who're like, oh yeah, we have a team for that. Well, how often do you engage that team? Well, we only engage them in these types of manners or whatever, right? To me, I mean. And, and they know the deficiencies there. Like, yeah, I know when our threat intel team, they, they kind of do some things. Sometimes they throw things away they think that are important or whatever. And they understand there's the deficiency as far as like how communication works, what they can learn from each other on all those types of things because of that siloed nature. Well, if you look at a tiered approach, it's kind of a siloed approach as well, right? So when you think, when you, if you're, if you work in an environment where you can see where having certain teams so siloed, it, it is not beneficial is start to be destructive a little bit um then you can understand that the power of tier list but tom what i was going to throw your way is you you run tier list in your sock but the one thing that's unique about your sock that i know about is you carry a lot of different capabilities hmm? right and when we talk about like everyone has unique teams how do those capabilities like what capabilities do you have in house with the tier list approach and how many people do you do just kind of staff all of it like Go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, hey, we're, let's go. Okay. Um, so this is one of the beauties that I think about a tierless system. Right. It allows you to operationalize a lot of security efforts in the same place. Um, as an example, um, you can create an ecosystem because like, well, you know, and you have to break through the barriers because everybody thinks like a sock is a thing and, and threat intelligence is a thing and, you know, all these things are, are separate. They don't have to be. You can think differently about that. And we've proven time and time and time again the absolute effectiveness of taking a tierless approach and then looking at in that tierless approach, how do you develop your ecosystem to encompass all of these things that operationalize what you're trying to do and your mission at a far more effective rate? Meaning threat intelligence exists in my SOC and is run out of my SOC. Threat emulation and red teaming is run out of my SOC. Forensics and malware analysis is run out of my SOC. Um, automation and content development all run out of my sock. Hunt is being run out of my sock. And I have a soccer 15 analyst. And we are doing this at a highly, highly effective rate. And we're You're doing 24 it. 24 by 7. And we're 24 by 7. And, I, and we're able to do and encompass all of these things. And everything is as you add in, as you come up with net new, you roll it into the ecosystem. So as an example, when you when you have a tierless structure, you're not allowed to do these things. But then when you think beyond that to the to you know, even in a tierless sock, like you have places that will isolate these other areas that we're doing. 
So as an example, like we've talked with, with companies we know where they, they have a dedicated hunt team. Awesome, right? It's great. Their turnaround time to their hunt to different to IR or to rule content is like days and weeks. Ours and the way we do it, it's hours, sometimes minutes. Like we're throwing something at the ecosystem in the fearless structure where we have many hands that are trained to a level that can contribute and some beyond, which kind of feeds the other part. I'm, I'm going to side note this, like the tierless system, what it does when you, when you kind of train people up like that, you allow people to grow. Um, it is wild to watch people's passion spawn when you let them get their hands on certain things. Like somebody that never thought they wanted to be an automation engineer or content developer when they came in to be a security analyst, suddenly this thing sparks and it fits their persona and now you're developing these things. But that circles back to speaking to that ecosystem. When you empower people to do that in a tierless structure, you can then enable all of these possibilities in your SOC or in your operations, however you want to frame it. And um, yeah, I mean, I love that we're able to do that. And I still, I will preach it on the highest mountain that think about it, you know, like I, I couldn't imagine, like all of my analysts are, are, are empowered to, to develop content. Not so, all are required or some are tasked to, but could you imagine like coming up with a new idea and then having to wait four weeks because you had these barriers of either a tiered structure to get someone to do it or go to this other department to try to create it? Like that is, at this point in my career, that's maddening to me. I could not fathom having to live in that environment because you're, you're going to be behind by the time it's developed. Okay, so, so you know. I was going to say the one, the one thing that is um, kind of interesting. So when you look at job resumes or not resumes, but um, job postings and they have like this list of criteria of what they want in somebody. And you, and you, sometimes you see that unicorn posting like, Oh, this person has to have this, 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 you are like, that's like 15 years of experience or whatever. And they have to actually fill multiple seats in different companies or roles or whatever. What's cool is with that tierless approach and having all those capabilities kind of in house, you're able to develop your own unicorns, mm -hmm. right? Which is not not common, right? Like there's a lot of people that don't share a lot of those. At least some of them might get some of the skills from training certifications or whatever. But when you can put on that experience where they've worn the hat to some degree and had the hands on with whatever skills and training they have, I mean, I think that's paramount, and that's what I mean. We know people are looking for unicorns, but it's really easy to develop them in house if you've got the right resources. A million percent, and and we've been able to do that. And in, in my little neck of the woods, and my little piece of the industry, um, you find people that are just interested and passionate, and you create a framework that allows them to blossom. And like, it's amazing. And not just do that, but you hire them in under that preface, like, "Hey, I want to develop you. Are you interested in this stuff? You have these skill sets, or you're you you've done well here. But here's what I'm offering. I'm offering this smorgasbord of of areas to develop in, and committing to this whole idea. And I want to empower you to develop. I want you to run in the area that you're passionate about. And yeah, it's you create your own unicorns." really fast actually like almost almost and that's where some of what of a downside comes in because in this in this side of the house you know you have to make sure you have that framework to build because when you allow people to develop like that they do become i'm going to say the brutal truth i'm going to be ultra transparent here they become employable like everywhere they're very attractive so you have yeah, to yeah. find ways to retain those folks and keep them inspired and empowered and that's that's tricky that's not always easy but it's no different than if you're sitting in a tiered sock and you got a level one guy that could have been a unicorn and you're burning them out with alert fatigue because you're just making yeah. them do this five yeah. things all along. So, you know, it's attrition's real, right? But you also have to look at from a budget perspective. If you're training a guy that is an infill analyst, a hunter, an IR guy, 
you know, all of these things, you're now adding to what the the kind of pay grade, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. like that's going to be problematic too from a budget perspective, but you want these type of individuals. Yeah, they're, they're the ones that will solve your problems. But right. here's, a, here's a stat that matters. Um, and this is one I'm actually incredibly proud of. Um, it, it, it may have dog pictures somewhere in it for sure, but on the surface of it all, um, the average attrition for a SOC analyst is right around just below 16 months as of last summer. Um, our, our average turnover rate is just over four years. And I think that speaks volumes. So why I would, you know, I would love to retain everybody as long as I can. Going above double the retention rate of the standard SOC, I think that speaks to the idea, right? That back and it was, the idea that it was three years when I was there running it. Yeah. So and we and we ran a very similar system. So it just shows if you value your people and you empower them to do things they want to do, it's not a place they want to leave unless you give them reason. So right. did you reset the days left from the last person leaving? Like the that side and went back to zero when you left. <laughs> you screwed up the stats, Scott. Only to certain people. Only to certain people. <laughs> but you want those individuals because it's important for security where a community, you want those individuals that you trained up to then go do the same thing elsewhere and build other unicorn factories. Right? Yeah. So like you're you're helping to solve a larger issue because you're you're developing well-rounded, smart individuals for cybersecurity that are- well, Mike, I think that goes- Other organizations, right? It goes right into your topic you were going to bring up next. If we want to just jump right into that. Before we do that, I, I'm going to ask, because the only question I had was, as the team grows, does the tireless or does the tierless system struggle larger group sizes? I, I love the idea, and I really enjoyed it while I was there, right? I was learning bits and pieces of everything, but for my, the, the best analogy I can come up with is that um, with a military background, right? There, there was a certain team spot, team spam where you had a team leader, four to six privates, squad leader, two team leaders, and so on. With that tier list, and I get that that's a whole different perspective, right? That's a whole different job. Like that needs to be tier. Um, you need to yell at someone and train them to just do when the time has come. Um, but for tier lists, what at what point is it kind of like out of control where I mean I get the, I guess the best analogy is I just picture a bunch of privates in a sock just hammering away at keys, right? Like I know like they're naturally someone's naturally gonna groom become the leader and have the experience and here we go. But at one point, like you know, if you are if we are talking about the bigger organizations keeping that tiered system, right? Do they need the tier system because they have four lists at twenty four by seven? Like, like you can have tier lists for the hands and feet on the ground, but you can still have tiered for leadership, right? Because that makes sense because your leadership is what's supposed to control the hands on the ground. And if if Tom's gonna you know tackle fifteen to nineteen people by himself, that that's the structure they have. But there's no reason you can't have leaders among smaller groups of people based on when the time of day, you know, things are happening if you're 24 by seven or you have it based on specialties. So you have like leads for specific areas, but it's still tierless as far as that goes. You know, I think there's ways you can dice that, but I really feel like leadership naturally follows a tiered approach. 
Um, it always has. There's always this reporting structure. Someone gives you requirements. Someone gives you things you need to produce. So I think with leadership, that that's where you put the tiered effort. And then they're kind of mandating kind of how to deal with the two. Now, the problem you have is who reports to who. Um, and that kind of creates more of the tiered structure. But if you can figure out how to have that tiered leadership and kind of have that understanding that, yeah, you might have more than one lead depending on what you're working on, what area you're working in, or what time you're working, that, that, that might be part of the solution. Um, I haven't really like, sol- you know, come up with a solution for that. But that's how I think about that, at least internally. Yeah, you're um, to have subject matter experts. Um, and yeah. we're around those, those, those fields, right? So, I mean, with us being a, a flat org, we still have a director of content development that, you know, needs to have a little bit of peer view into what's going on on the day to day. And then you have subject matter, subject matter experts in the different tools and the methodologies and it all kind of flows together. So if you, Scott needed help on something very specific and we had that person that was that expert, you would kind of go to them for that. Right. right? Naturally. Yeah, you want to have to go to the director to get to that person. That's yeah, we have to go through like a chain of people and then set up a meeting right. two weeks out because I know they have things there. But yeah, yeah, know that yeah. meeting for the meeting, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want me to introduce the the next yeah. Thing real quick? Yeah. And this kind of flows into what we're talking about from potentially a TOS approach, but it's the high level around white space. Um, and this is really kind of centered around you know you need to be able to grow your internal employees, but you also need to have those employees be productive in their day-to-days and what they're doing. So there's always a fine line into giving individuals the ability to go learn and grow and, uh, you know, have time to go attack the things that they like to do uh, in that work structure, right? Because, you know, being again from startups that it's kind of a loose 40 hours a week, right? It's typically more than that, right? It's, it, it can fluctuate, but you still need that productivity and allowing those individuals to go, you know, explore things that they care about. So at least in my experience in the startups I've been a part of, there's typically been 80, 20, 90, 10 kind of split on your day to day. And then that white space. Um, but we always try to preach, the thing you're doing in that white space, think about it from the core business values and, and, and kind of vision. And if you can do something to help the organization while you're tackling the thing that you love, that's even better, right? So we're we're hunters here. So in your 20% time, don't go out and do like learn how to draw or play the guitar or, you know, something wildly different than, you know, in and around cyber or computers or, you know, if it can help with what we do with Scott, I mean, not talking specifics, there's, you know, pending on what we're working on today, but in that 20% time that you've had, you've built something that could be tremendously valued to the core business, cybersecurity itself. Like, and that's really cool to see that kind of happen in that space and in that white space, but you've also been really productive, right? And it could help you in that time that you spend off your day-to-day that could energize you for that day-to-day work, right? You could be re-energized in that, that 80 or that. So, um, you know, Scott, I'll kind of kick it over to you as have you seen in, in your past, how have you balanced that kind of white space? Um, so, yeah, I think white space is paramount for two reasons. 
and, and especially in cybersecurity, like one, like that professional growth, um, because we're, we're the best at tabling things that we see. Like if you talk about Intel feeds or you talk about, I'm on LinkedIn and there's other really interesting things. I'm really good at saving things for later. And if I don't have time to go back to them, then I get really no value for the things that I know that might provide value. Um, and I think it's, that's just how we work because things are always moving and things are always hitting us. Um, but being a leader in this space, understanding how people need to grow in the white space, you know, there was a, a really, really great, um, and it was from Darknet diaries. I think it's a great podcast. Um, that, and it was one of the things they cover with Shamoon when they hit Saudi Aramco. It was one of the attacks they did there. And they, and it was a, a female lead. I don't remember her name. They were going to bring her in to basically, we need to fix our security kind of scenario. And her requirements was like, can I, you know, hire whoever I want for my team? It was one of the requirements. And they're like, yeah, you can hire whoever. And she goes, oh, and I also want 10 grand for training per individual. And I want them to work four days a week. And they were kind of like, well, why four days a week? And she's like, because they're going to be dealing with incidents, which is going to tax them over, right? So I want them to be fresh. I want them to be willing. I want them to be qualified. And she understood the importance of white space, right? Like my people need to be able to work effectively and work well. And granted, you know, um, white space is another great thing to suss out, like who will be your passionate drivers and grow and who won't. Um, so when it comes to like a leadership, do you provide white space? You're able to easily, like when you have to do your evaluations on your people, um, and I think it's a great way to structure that. Um, and I've always liked, um, I had a manager that helped me kind of level set with all the different ways companies evaluate people in scoring systems. He was like, who do you want, who do you want to keep? Who's really good to have around and who you don't mind getting rid of? Not meaning these are the people you're going to fire, right? Like, cause you, if there's people that you have cause for firing, you should probably get rid of them when it makes sense. You don't have to go through that process, but it's people that if they leave, you're not going to, you're like, okay, it's not going to hurt us. Or if these people leave that you don't want to leave, like, yeah, we won't do anything to try to keep them, but it'd be great to keep them around if they want to stay. And then the people that you're willing to bend over backwards, it make sure you retain. And that's kind of the, the, the train of thought there. And the white space will help you kind of suss some of those things out. Um, but yeah, like I've been able to chase so many passion projects with the white space I've had. Um, and that was one of the, the biggest drivers what kind of kicked me out of leadership too, um, in some aspects, because it became, oh, I have meetings from eight to five, four days out of the five days of the week. And I'd have to schedule my own white space to get things done. But there's tasks that were given to me that I know that as a leader, I can give to my people, but they're not their work. And, and I can't make my senior leaders understand that, yeah, I'm not going to make them build the report for me to just talk to. If I'm going to talk to something, do something, I need to create that myself. And if I want to improve upon that and make it have value i need to do it myself too so that was very frustrating from a white space white space perspective michael you're gonna say something yeah I, I, tom i kind of want to hear kind of your response to that running a tier of the sock having those 15 to 16 people um they're sharing the load across the space and even you as a manager right do you have time for white space like do you have time to go do the things that you want to do and learn <laughs> your your career professional um, yeah, well, for me, that's, that's a whole topic, but I'll, I'll talk about my analysts for sure. Um, white space isn't an option. It's a focus and it's a mandatory thing. Um, okay. There was a quick story and kind of how we got to this point of thinking. Um, there was a point in time where 
you know, we'd work the normal 40, 50 hour a week shifts. And then me and Scott actually would like dedicate off hour away from it, put in extra hours to create white space for ourselves to do the things we've been dying to do. And we go sit in a conference room on a whiteboard for eight, 10 hours on a Saturday, like after we did a full week's worth of work and just be like, Hey, we want to solve this problem or, Hey, we want to come up with this new solution. And we did like, as an, as a soft example and the tool that we had at the time, we really wanted to find some creative ways to detect lateral movement. So we came up with these off the wall solutions (laughs) in a 10 hour period, dropped it in operational use. And a couple of weeks later, it, it was the core, it was some of the core content that detected a, you know, a, a pen test against our environment. We were so fast at catching it because we did that. Stem forward years, it's like, you know, I understand the value of white space, so I encourage it on my people. But part of the white space thing is, and what people tend to get nervous with this, with what I've seen is is the the old thought of management. You have to redefine what production means. And production doesn't mean that you your individuals, especially in a SOC, are just spinning out new new nuts and bolts. They're just at a, at a manufacturing line, just churning. Production in white space means the things they're coming after. So yeah, I'm not gonna back my guys going into their flex time where that's the created white space form of going and learning how to you know how to play guitar or how to do those things, right? But um, that's well known. That's defined. So the expectation is already set. So they're empowered right. to take that white space, meet these certain levels of productions based on either project work they're lined up for, or ideas they have that they want to shoot for, or some sprints that even they themselves develop to help improve us like the me and Scott thing in a conference room on a Saturday. And that's, that's how you kind of start defining what that production means. So that white space is freedom to them to optimize, you know? So it's white space isn't an option. It it has to be mandatory or you're going to face burnout or you're going to face, you know, people just going to get deflated. Like you want to empower them. You can mark production in a way that keeps them accountable, but let them run give them the space. I think you'll, you'll find out immediately who has the passion for the things that they're doing when you give them that white space. Cause y'all spend, y'all spend 10 hours on a Saturday working after working probably already a 60 hour, 70 hour work week, knowing y'all, right. Um, but that's the passion, right. And then giving people that white space and seeing them attack it. If they don't use it, they're not probably passionate about what they're doing in the day to day. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where the management piece comes in. So you can identify those people and then you can put frameworks to then have these mandatory lines they have to hit in that same white space. So you can right. still optimize their production using right. the same white space. You just got to put the framework in so, and call that production, right? So something that was insightful to me and running security was COVID. And, you know, obviously we can tell you know, loosely when people are active on the network, when they log in, all that kind of stuff. Right. And we were getting asked because people are now working remote by management of different areas to say, Hey, I want to know if people are logging in at this time or logging out at this time for productivity reasons. Right. Like it was very clear that was the justification. And as a manager, I was thinking to myself, like, I do not assess my people based on how many hours they sit on a keyboard. It's what they produce, Mm -hmm. right? And if you don't know how to measure what your people produce to say they're doing their job, then you really need to reevaluate what the job is they're doing, right? Um, And that used to frustrate the hell out of me because I'm like, yeah, I like if my, if, if I tell my people, Hey, here's a list of five things we need to get done today. 
and they get it done in two hours, there's no reason why I wouldn't say go home, make sure you're reachable for the while you're on call, right? Yeah. Because yeah. if I need you, I'll reach you and I expect you to answer during the time when you should potentially be working. But if you can achieve what I need you to get done in a short period of time, your reward for getting it done effectively and done well, and you know, maybe you'll even work on more things because you have more time after that. Like I've got what I needed for the day. And I think that's at least I learned that from the military. I had some great leaders in the military. That's how they operated because they knew we didn't have much time at home. They knew we didn't have much time doing the things that we need to do personally. I mean, like what's great about white space is it also lets you dictate like, Hey, if you have appointments that you need to hit for just, you know, daily, like, I don't know how many times I've skipped my annual, annual review, whatever with the doctor, right? Your annual check-in because I just didn't have time for it. And I didn't feel, I didn't feel justified taking the time just for like a one appointment for the year type thing. Like it just, you know, and that sucks. And when you put people through that, and you should really care enough about people to manage them in a way to understand that there's things that exist outside of that day-to-day and you just have deliverables that need it. And that's it. But think about the inspiration you would provide people. Like, it's like, hey, here's the things you need to do. Yeah, if you knock them out in two hours, all right, go, relax, cut your brain loose. And, yeah. and it helps them motivate them to go after and tackle it. But then beyond that, it's like, well, hell, I've developed myself and I tackled this in two hours. What else could I do? And I what else could I accomplish? different carrots for allowing them to go after yeah. extras, you know? show that that extra work is also valued so they can maximize white space even more. So Yan has a thought. They said, I was thinking something crazy. Perhaps AI could replace more management layers between security <laughs> and security analysts. Would you be okay to be managed by an AI that follow the corporation strategy, but leave you your creativity and autonomy? Um, what are your thoughts? As long as it met the right pieces, right? It took care of the people. It took care of what the company needed. Like as long as it was able to check all the boxes, I don't care. I mean, it'd be like a way to prioritize. You came up with that example of, I give an analyst five tasks to do today. They got them done in two hours. Maybe the AI double checks that those tasks are done correctly and kind of helps verify it immediately. And then you can move on, right? Or understands what the task is and the complexity of the task and say, okay, you're good to go. Or then it gets to the place where managers are going to use it and be like, why aren't you doing all this other stuff immediately? And you know, you're not operating up to your standards. So it could get tricky, right? The worst thing I saw was leadership that would give those tasks and you finish them fast because you're motivated. And then the, and immediately deflate you by like, Oh, you finish that in two hours. Cool. We got these five other things that we can get done and get ahead. And you're like, no, dude, like my, my kid has a problem with that when I'm like, hey, this is what you need to get done. And if I were to stack something else, they're like, that wasn't part of the deal. Like you can see it right. in the face and like, right. you just feel like you're robbing people of like their initiative. Um, yeah. when you do that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think we're out of time. Yeah. I think we hit the time mark. So to kind of close. Yeah. Leon, I'm going to stop you later. I'll sit here, and it's a great conversation we had. You guys, everyone from the managerial, this leadership talk is great because some people need to hear it, uh, or a lot of organizations need to hear it. Um, unfortunately, I personally think that's like this. I think uh, Nat Zaram talked about the, um, the financial industry. I have a feeling that places like that that are really – really strong on uh you know governance 
uh, regular stuff like that, that it's got to be that way. And that's just works and they're afraid of touching it. Yeah. It's a great conversation. I mean, we have three great leaders in this house right now. Um, I mean, I'm okay. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> so with that, um, I, I, you might see a poll if you like our uh, drink for the night, the firewall, just to give us feedback on the on a poll there. But I also want to cover on some highlights. Um, we've got the top cover three. I'll be talking about reporting and communication. So the top cover is more lead, more directed towards management. Um, this one's about you know communication. I'll talk through some of our um, reporting elements and why we report the way we do, um, which you know hopefully is and it's gonna be short. It's from 12 to 12:30 on May. 24th and that's Eastern standard time. And then there is another threat hunt workshop, um, focusing on Xville led by Lee, uh, May 31st from 12 to 1 PM Eastern standard time. Lee, you want to give a quick plug for that? Yeah. So that's it's about. the kind of standard, um, setup we have, we give you an OVA that has elastic running on it. Now we give you a log file that has an attack or an emulated attack in it. And basically we start with two hunt packages from the hunter platform. Um, the community edition, we make sure that they're community edition, um, so that you can gain access. You can follow the step-by-step, uh, hunt demonstrations that I provide. And then we always throw a flag at the end. So you have to do a little more, uh, work, uh, to earn your badge. And really you're showing that you learned some skills or you're fine tuning your skills that you already have, um, to find the fight. I, I always enjoy them. Um, and I hope those who attend do as well. So you go ahead. We'll be at Gardner's uh, Security and Risk Management Summit this year, actually, for the first time. But really oppor- really great opportunity just to talk shop if you want to come by. I think we have a booth. Uh, we'd be happy to meet you and talk shop and hunting and all things cybersecurity. So um, that'll be the first time we're doing that one. But uh, Tom, thanks again for coming on. Uh, the discussion's amazing. I'm sure we'll have you on again. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate it, guys. I love the conversations. Anytime, let me know. Easy on the it was everyone. <laughs> yeah. So once again, I want to thank everyone for joining. Um, I, you know, we all love talking shop with each other, with friends, with colleagues. So please, if you like what you hear, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts, and leave a good review. And you know, that good review helps others discover us. Um, and join the conversation. And I think the more people that can join in on some of these things, you know, kind of help things move along and become really interesting. And for those that don't know, we also do a brief 30 to 45 minute episode to just kind of hit the, the top five topics we bring to the table, you know, either intelligence reports, technical write-ups um, for the week that we kind of touch on um, on Wednesdays. So check those out as well. Um, and with that, um, happy hunting, everyone. Yeah, great. Thanks for talk. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.